Uh, June greetings and happy Pride Month. Uh, welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Uh, thank you for joining us for tonight's uh, talk on a new report by the Asian American uh, Bar Association of New York entitled Endless Tide, the Continuing Struggle to Overcome Anti-Asian Hate in New York. Uh, we're joined by two of the editors of the report, Christopher M. Kwok and Megan L. Gao, and also joined by David M. Kim, who is profiled in the report. Uh, Endless Tide is a follow-up to Ebony's 2021 report, A Rising Tide of Hate and Violence Against Asian Americans in New York During COVID-19, Impact Causes and Solutions. Uh, Chris and his colleague Karen King presented on that report last March at our institute, uh, shortly after the spa shootings in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, that video is available on our website to view. Uh, you can check it out after this talk. Uh, Christopher M. Kwok is a mediator and arbitrator with JAMS, uh, specializing in labor and employment law and employment law. Uh, he was previously the alternative uh, dispute resolution coordinator at the U.S. Equal Employment Commission in New York District Office. Uh, Mr. Kwok is the board director and issues committee chair for the Asian American Bar Association of New York. Uh, he is also an adjunct professor at Hunter College, CUNY, and the New York City College of Technology at CUNY. Um, Megan L. Gao is an associate litigator at Paul Weiss, uh, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison LLP, and vice chair of the Asian American Bar Association of New York's Pro Bono and Community Service Committee. Uh, Ms. Gao received her JD and uh, Harlan Fisk Stone Scholar uh, at the Columbia Law School and BA from Northwestern University. Uh, David M. Kim is an agent at MTY Group, conducting commercial property services, focusing on investment sales and leasing for multifamily uh, hotel, office, and retail properties throughout New York, Brooklyn, Queens, and integrating domestic and foreign investments in the New York City market. Uh, please welcome tonight's speakers. Thanks so much, Anthony. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back here. Um, we are talking about a weighty topic, and we thank CUNY Ari um, and Joyce Moy, uh, who's retiring this year. So, uh, sad to see you go. I uh, hope you'll still be around. Um, this is an important um, circle for us uh, because, of course, our report is focused on New York City. And Megan and myself and other editors have worked uh, tirelessly on this report now uh, for uh, the second report, you know, for, for the second time. And, you know, it, it really is, of course, a, a sequel, you know, to the first one. One of the questions we had coming out of the first one, one of the things that we heard from the police, from the DA, from elected officials was report, 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 and get these things out there because we don't hear about it. Nothing can be done. And so we really took that seriously. We said, well, you know, there are people reporting. It's not like no one's reporting. Um, what's happening? And, and how is, how are the PD, the police department, and the DA, um, you know, taking care of these uh, cases uh, with Asian victims and anti-hate crimes and incidents? What's going on here? So we took a really close look. And I'm going to turn it over to Megan, who's going to walk us through some of the uh, presentation of their findings and, 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 the, and the events surrounding um, uh, our report. So Megan, uh, and I'll be back. Uh, and, and David Kim is one of the people profiled in the report of an incident in Queens that we're going to share with you because we think that the stories here are really going to help illuminate some of the issues that, we, that we're pointing to. Uh, and then after that, we'll, we hope to have a discussion with you all. So stick around. And we want to take your questions and have a, a discussion. So without further ado, Megan. 
Thanks so much, Chris, and thanks so much, Anthony, and everyone on this call. Um, it's really great to be speaking with you all for this uh, discussion about an important topic, and thank you all for spending your Friday evening with us. Um, so as Anthony and Chris um, might have mentioned, you know, last year, um, Abani in February 2021 published the Rising Tide Report, which was our first report that was focused on COVID's impact to the AAPI community, um, and also outlined some historical causes of, as well as contributing factors during the pandemic towards anti-Asian sentiment. Um, so that report had a number of recommendations on how to move forward and address the rising tide of anti-Asian hate and violence. Um, but we do consider that report sort of the first of a series because um, after the report, Albany formed the Anti-Asian Violence Task Force, which I've had the privilege of being a member of over the past year. Um, and the task force has really been focused on doing more research and advocacy surrounding the recommendations in the first report and how we can really make those recommendations happen. So the second Endless Tide report, um, which was published just last week, is the culmination of all of Abney's, report, uh, Abney's work over the past year. Uh, so on this, uh, on this slide, you have basically a, a timeline. On the top um, is the beginning um, or the, late, the later half of 2020 and the beginning of 2021 um, when um, we were seeing a lot of press coverage about anti-Asian violence, particularly after the tragic um, spa shootings in mid-March of 2021 and then throughout May, which was AAPI Heritage Month. But then after that, we noticed that media coverage sort of waned and faded away. Um, and then on the bottom, you'll see uh, later in 2021, the, um, a bunch of initiatives by the DOJ, which um, Albany attended a number of those meetings and listening sessions to see sort of the initiatives the DOJ was implementing and the work that they were doing. And then towards the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, you have four high profile cases involving victims that tragically passed away. Um, Yal Pan Ma, the man who was collecting cans in Harlem when he was attacked and stomped on the head. Um, Michelle Goh, who was shoved to her death in front of a subway train at the Times Square station. Uh, Christina Yuna Lee, who was stabbed in her Chinatown Manhattan apartment. and. Weying Ma, um, a Queens resident who died from injuries after her head was smashed with a rock. Uh, so this sort of just outlines, you know, the, the landscape um, and what we were, we at Albany were looking into um, really trying to collect more data on, um, which I'll outline shortly. This slide is more about external sources of data. Um, so you see, um, since the onset of the pandemic in March 2020, over 10,000 hate incidents were reported to stop AAPI hate, um, an organization that um, established, you know, a, an informal reporting mechanism for uh, people to, to report was, what was happening to them. And then in the first quarter of 2021, there was a large increase in hate crimes compared with the same time period in 2020. Um, and the increase in New York was actually higher than the nationwide average, 262% um, compared to 189%. And then finally, um, 
according to data from the NYPD, uh, between 2020 and 2021, anti-Asian uh, hate crimes actually increased 361%. And you see a, a graphic on the right-hand side um, comparing 2020 in blue and 2021 in orange, and you see a dramatic increase. So um, these next few slides are about uh, the data that Abani actually collected, um, which forms um, a large part of what the second report is about. So um, we at Abani were all lawyers, and we thought that we can make a unique contribution to the data that's already out there by tracking cases through the criminal justice system. Uh, one of the observations we made in our first report was that, you know, we haven't seen or we're not aware of a single prosecution of an anti-Asian hate crime from inception to resolution. And that this second report, we really tried to collect more data on that, see what was really happening. So we collected data on 233 anti-Asian incidents in the first three quarters of 2021. And our sources were um, largely public sources. You know, in the beginning, we, although we, we later, to get more information, spoke with DA's offices um, to, to find out the status of various prosecutions in the beginning, we didn't have any more information than anyone in the general public would. So the main sources that we used were the NYPD, which maintains a hate crimes dashboard. Um, and that's a, um, if you just look online, it's a, it's a dashboard that's updated quarterly and it sort of encapsulates all hate crimes, not just anti-Asian hate crimes. Um, but by sifting through that data, looking for the anti-Asian hate crimes, we're able to capture all of the data that the NYPD was putting out there. And then uh, we also looked at another NYPD resource, um, which gave us more specific data on location, um, cross streets, as opposed to just precincts, which the hate crimes dashboard does. In addition, um, another source that we looked at was um, there's a number of community members that get notifications from the mayor's office for the prevention of hate crimes. And Albany um, is one of those community partners. And this mayor's office um, function puts out notifications whenever they um, are uh, find out from the NYPD that there is a violent hate crime. And that's violent, um, which they have guidelines under local regulations as to which uh, crimes are categorized as violent. Um, and they put those alerts out to the community so that they're aware of them. And that was another source for the public data that we collected. And then finally, we looked at news reports, um, uh, you know, the, the typical New York um, major newspapers, the NYPD, social media, um, you know, alerts. And we, from those news sources, also were able to add to our database of incidents. Um, notably for news media, we, we only added incidents if they were corroborated by multiple sources so that we weren't, um, you know, if something was reported by just one source um, that is not really considered reputable, that would not be an incident that we'd add to our database. So these graphs, um, here you have a, a graph of um, New York area anti-Asian incidents by month. And you'll see that there was um, a lot of them in 
March of 2021. Um, and, you know, we can sort of surmise why that is. Like in January, February, a lot of lockdown requirements were still in place. Um, and after March, um, you know, like there may have been fewer news reports just because, you know, people were getting tired or um, the news just wasn't covering um, anti-Asian violence quite as much as, you know, right after the, the spa shootings and then throughout uh, May AAPI Heritage Month. On this slide, you have um, what we uh, uh, are illustrating as anti-Asian incidents by county. So you'll see that the majority of incidents are in Manhattan, about 60%, followed by um, incidents in Queens and Brooklyn, and then only a small percentage of the 233 incidents that we looked at occurred in Bronx and Staten Island. Here you have a graph of anti-Asian incidents by precinct. And what's interesting about this is that the 14th precinct, which you'll see has far and away the most incidents is uh, Midtown South, which gets a lot of foot traffic. But then you'll also see um, precincts like the 13th, which is also around Midtown, but um, the first and um, some other precincts around Chinatown are um, the areas with the most uh, incidents right after that. And here we've mapped out all of the incidents that we looked at. Um, and you'll see uh, basically the same, the same data with a large cluster of incidents in uh, mid to lower Manhattan, and then fewer incidents um, towards the, the outer boroughs. So this slide is uh, what the research team categorized into different offenses. These um, somewhat correspond with you know, offense categories in the New York penal law, but these actually are the research team's um, own categories as to, to what made sense based on the data that we were seeing. And um, you'll see that the large majority of offenses of the 233 were assault um, at 58.4%. What's interesting about this slide is you can compare this data to uh, the data collected by Stop AAPI Hate. If you look at the reports that Stop AAPI Hate puts out, far more of the incidents that they have been reported to um, have to deal with verbal harassment or shunning or spitting. Um, and you'll see on our data collection, verbal harassment was a smaller percentage at 8.2%. Um, and this may make sense because, you know, um, we were looking at criminal prosecutions of um, crimes, which some of them are, maybe many of them were actually violent. Um, and something like uh, spitting or verbal harassment may not have risen to the level of actually being reported to the police or, um, you know, resulting in arrests and prosecutions. Another thing that's interesting is you can compare these uh, categories to other sorts of uh, hate crimes. Um, for example, with uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes, 
you'll see that um, there's a lot more reporting of property damage. Um, for example, uh, graffiti of swastikas or attempted arson. Um, and although we did see some, some property damage of Chinese um, and Asian businesses during the pandemic, um, that's something that uh, we, uh, Abney uh, has been uh, sort of hypothesizing distinguishes anti-Asian hate crimes from other types of hate crimes where, you know, there's not really um, a noticeable or a marker of the hate crime towards that protected class, like a swastika, but often it's actual individuals being uh, attacked or assaulted. And then this last slide on the data just sums up um, what we are seeing. So um, as I mentioned, we collected data on 233 incidents in the first three quarters of 2021. Um, and there, because there were some incidents with multiple victims, the number of victims actually came out to 248. But um, in terms of the 233 incidents, 91 of those incidents resulted in arrests, which makes up 39% of the incidents that we looked at. And then of those 91, because only arrests will actually result in um, prosecutions by the DA's office, 41 of those 91 um, were incidents that were actually charged as hate crimes, which is 18% of the total 233 number. For this next slide, I'll turn it back over to Chris. Thanks, Megan. And so, you know, we, one, if you read our report, which I've given everyone uh, the link to in the, in the chat, we, we spent some time going into some specific cases uh, because um, specific cases will illustrate some of the ideas that we're talking about. And uh, you look at the numbers and the data, it's one thing, but to hear the personal stories of people, it's another. Um, you might remember in early February of 2021, we're all holed up at home. Uh, we're, we're about to, um, you know, the lockdown hasn't happened yet, um, but there was an incident of, um, where there was an Asian victim uh, of, 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 of a crime. Um, a person pushed her. To, they had an altercation, verbal argument, which escalated um, to, to a physical fight. Pushed her, her, she hit her head on the newspaper um, stand, uh, a dispenser, and it 10 stitches. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, attention on that. You know, the, at that moment, it was was very much focused on anti-Asian violence. And then there's some months passed and Abney didn't have uh, any uh, follow-up. And we figured, hey, the Queen's DA just kind of did the right thing there, followed up with the thing, charged it seriously. Um, but when we did take a look at it sometime in, in the summer, we found that that was not the case. That in Queens, the DA had charged it um, essentially sort of as like a, like a parking violation. It was very, very minor. And there was no hate crime charges. And so we, we asked for a meeting and we took the newspaper um, the, uh, article. Uh, in the meanwhile, the accused, uh, Mateo, had spoken with New York Times reporter, uh, relayed what had happened, what he said. He said, this is not China, give, give me some space, this is, you know, this is Corona, and it kind of exploded. And, and we really pushed, you know, for there to be um, something added to that. And it's not that, you know, uh, this incident is not going to result in Mateo going to, to, to jail. Uh, even with the hate crime charge, but we felt that there was accountability and responsiveness 
from our police department, from our district attorney that we really needed to have. And you know what? If we weren't paying attention, they weren't going to give that attention. They weren't going to give that seriously. And we were kind of shocked at how much it took because eventually they did, you know, put the charges on and then it was resolved. And I, interestingly enough, there were seven hate crime convictions in 2021 for Asian Americans, six of which were in Manhattan, one of which in Queens, and this is the one you're looking at. And without the intervention of the community and Ebony and us paying attention and being engaged, this would have just been sort of nothing. And, and, and that's part of the issue we have, that in a time of high visibility of anti-Asian violence, we really need people to be responsive. We really need our police department, our district attorneys to be responsive, particularly with Asian victims. And, and that's one story we wanted to share with you. It's in our report, if you want to read the detail. Another report is about David Kim. And we brought David here, and he's, he's been kind enough to, to join us. So, David, why don't you tell the audience member your story, and then we'll take it from there. It's been exactly two years uh, today uh, since this incident occurred. Um, you know, it was, it started out to, you know, it started out as just a regular car accident, you know, car accidents happen. Uh, but what happened was it sort of escalated to something much worse, uh, which could have been much worse if it wasn't for uh, the bystanders. But uh, it was a hate, it was a hate filled incident uh, that you could read uh, in the report. Um, Am I, should I go into details of exactly what happened that day or? I think you can, I think you can describe generally for our audience here, you know, sort of summarize a little bit about what happened here. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. From, well, you can see the, the main details in the, in the report um, that was uh, published in the science uh, recently. Um, but, you know, my first, what happened in the beginning was, you know, it was just, they were young. The, uh, the perpetrators were very young, um, but still the way they reacted in this kind of situation with, uh, with race, I mean, that, you know, that doesn't need to be accounted for in any kind of incident. I mean, it's, we're all people, we're all saying we all make mistakes, but, you know, race has nothing to do with it. And at the time it was 2020 of June, June 9th, to be exact, which is exactly two years almost. Um, it was in the middle of Black Lives Matter demo, uh, demonstrations in the city. So the police had, the governor had a curfew. Um, my friend and my girlfriend, the three of us were trying to make it uh, before 8 p.m., which was the curfew time uh, to, I believe it was seven or eight. Um, I was, we were trying to bring her home when this car accident happened. They failed to stop at a stop sign and they ran into our vehicle. When, when we called the police at that time, you know, because of the curfew and the Black Lives Matters, the precinct was locked up. So basically we had no assistance at that time, which is understandable. Uh, when I called 911, they told me to just exchange information with the other vehicle and just be on our way. But that, you know, the matter was much more serious and we needed somebody at the scene. So eventually it took them, you know, they came out, the police, there were police that were going by and they stopped. When they stopped, you know, they, they basically told us the same thing. They uh, told us to exchange insurance information, driver's license information. And 
you know, usually, typically, they were supposed to fill out a report, but they didn't fill one out. They told us to go to the precinct the day after to pick up a, a report from the uh, from the precinct, and that was it. They weren't taking down any information. So, I mean, that was it. And we were trying to, after that, they left. And we were just trying to be on our way just to follow the uh, directions from the police officers. But that's when the other individuals, you know, they stopped us. Um, we were comfortable with just picking up information at the precinct because we had a, uh, we had a black box. We had a dash cam in our vehicle. So it captured the entire incident. So, and the thing was the other, uh, the people in the other vehicle, they figured that out. They uh, they knew we had this dash cam. So, I mean, we told them that we have evidence. We had all we need. Let's just be on our way and go home. Uh, we had to make, you know, it was a curfew as well. So we need to we need to be inside, not outside. But, I mean, they didn't want to let us go. So they followed to our vehicle and they climbed into the window. And they, try, they were trying to take the dash cam off our vehicle. That's, you know, that's when the, the incident was escalated. But... Even before that, when we were waiting for the police, when we were looking, when we were taking pictures of the vehicle, the damages on our vehicle, you know, they're spewing this, the hate, you know, I mean, because of also uh, at that time, we were the only ones with masks on. And, you know, this was the peak of COVID. This is when the infections rate was, you know, through the roof. And these guys did not have any masks. They didn't have any protection. They didn't have any care whatsoever of our of other well beings nor theirs. And we were asking them to, you know, stay six feet at least six feet away from us. Do not approach us, you know, because there's no need for you to get close to me. There's no need for you know that kind of confrontation at this time. But besides, when I mentioned this, this is when they are saying, you know, well, it happened because of you. I mean, what do you got to worry about? You probably already got it. And, you know, it just escalated. And, you know, that's why I just walked away. Whatever whatever things they were going to say was just going to make things worse. And, you know, I, I am also human. You know, I get mad as well when, you know, when people start uh, spewing that kind of thing, those kinds of things to me. Even though I've been, I've lived here all my life. I've dealt with this thing every single day. When David, I was it's, David can, I, can I just stop here for a second? Where yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did the accident happen exactly? This is this happened in front of my house as well. That's the uh, that's where where is that Bayside? No, this is in Flushing. Uh, this is this was this happened off the intersection of 149th and 34th uh, Avenue, and I live on 147. So we got in the car and we were driving out when this happening occurred. So I mean, they so. Besides the point, that's where I live. This is my neighborhood. So I wouldn't want to cause any kind of rash. You know, oh, I didn't want to cause a scene because that's where I live. So if they want to, you know, if they had the information on where we live, I mean, we gave them our information from our driver's licenses. I mean, we live right there. So if they wanted to make it worse, they would probably would have come back. So I was just trying to leave. And that's when so they... How was how was yeah. the issue... Incident racialized for the people that haven't heard it. What happened when the accident? How did it become racial? Like they, did they come out of the car sort of spewing sort of racial incidents and and and, and yeah, verbal. I mean there were there were four people in that vehicle, and what happened was when when the accident happened, we all came out, we all came out, and we were looking at it, but they were saying racially, you know, charged filled words, you know, to us, 
referring to us as compound chickens, referring to, you know, things like that. And the thing was, the people in the vehicle, they were, they were white Caucasian, or in my opinion, they were white Caucasian and an African-American, but they had no regard for the Asian race because there was nobody Asian in that vehicle. So things they were saying, no, it may have been fun to them, but it wasn't, it surely wasn't nice. All right. So, but in the end, you know, it escalated. And that's when, you know, they were saying, they were yelling fucking chains. You know, they were yelling, you know, coronavirus. You guys are corona. You guys are the virus. And, you know, that's when we, that's when we got back into our vehicles and we were trying to leave, but they didn't let us. So that happened. They tried to, they reached into our vehicle. That's when we had to push them out, you know, close the windows, lock the doors. And we were trying to leave with a broken bumper that was scraping along the, the road. We couldn't, we couldn't pick up speed to leave. So we tried to back out and, you know, there were, there were five people at that point. Five people, there was two blocking our front, two blocking our back. And, you know, we were trying to leave, but they were telling us that, you know, they wanted to see the evidence in the dash cam footage and that his father was on the way. She called his father to the scene. Now, the father's not mentioned in the, uh, in the report, nor does anybody know of it unless I spoke to them first, you know, face to face. But the father eventually does come to the scene and at the end of this whole incident, he got out of his vehicle. He was watching from the corner of what his kids and his friends were doing. And he didn't do anything about it. So to me, this issue, you know, the resolution to issues of these kinds of, uh, this race, of this racism, you know, this has to start from the home. You know, what are these kids learning? What are they not learning from their parents? I mean, and, you know, that, that just was a mind-blowing incident, but but anyways, when that incident occurred, they you know they kept us from leaving. They kept screaming at us from the outside, but we told them that we would wait until their father came. You know, out of respect, you guys you guys are scared. I understand. We live right here, so if we don't make the curfew, we'll just go back home. That's it. But it wasn't, that wasn't it. And so when we, we really didn't comply with them to give them the dash cam, you know, they brought more friends. They called out more people. And later on in the video, you could see a pickup truck pull in in front of our vehicle with three other people in that car. They come out with, uh, with poles, large poles, at least five feet. And what they, what I suppose they were used for because the type of the vehicle is because, uh, it was a tow truck. It was a towing vehicle. So it was probably used as a lever for a hydraulic jack to, you know, it was part of their equipment. And they're holding that and surrounding our cars and they're not letting us leave. We can't, we, our front is blocked by the pickup truck and our back was blocked by these people. We can't run them over. So, you know, this didn't need to happen. And if you, you know, this could have been what, you know, just it could have been another incident that's not like uh that's not a hate crime as the DA says. But to me and to the other people in you know to the other parties in my vehicle, it was uh it was a, it was definitely a hate crime. It was definitely we could feel the hate. And, and it, was racially, it was right. racially. Imagine if we were white, would that would have happened? Imagine if we were black, would that would have happened? 
this was specifically because we were Asian and you know, not to, uh, so what happened was after this whole incident happened, you know, we, I went to the 109 precinct, I believe, I believe it's the 109th on uh, Flushing Main Street. And I tried to talk to one of these officers because what happened was after a few days after I saw there, that pickup truck surrounding, that was circling our neighborhood. I saw it. And you know, it could I thought it was I thought I saw somebody else that had the same vehicle, but I mean every single day. I mean, so I was scared. maybe I would have been I, I was paranoid. So I went to the precinct to, you know, to file to file a report to tell them about what happened, but they wouldn't let me in in the first place. It was during the demonstration. So so I understood and I went, I left. And then a month, a month later. I go back to the precinct. I tried to do the same thing, and this time they tell me that no, that's some that's a civil matter. I should take this to the civil court, uh, file a you know file a complaint with the with the civil court. That was it. That was there was nothing that the police could have done for me. That was their explanation, and this kind of thing shouldn't happen to uh, people. We live. We are citizens of this state, this country, and you know there's no reason for us to feel threatened by our race, you know, just especially in Flushing. This is Flushing, you know. So this is one of the highly uh, Asian, this is where, it's, you know, the Asians are highly concentrated. Uh, Megan, when you showed us the report, there was a map where uh, that had that marked all the incidents that happened in the city and the, in the within the boroughs, right? If you look at that, I mean, Midtown South, Chinatown, Flushing, this is where all the Asian people live. This, you know, as a commercial real estate, you know, sales broker, I see, you know, this, to me, a map is, I look at it different from what you guys see it, but the way I see it, the way you presented it to me, it just shows where all the Asian people live. And this is happening in our home, in our neighborhood. This is where, this is happening where we're living, but police, they're not doing anything. So, at the end of this whole incident that happened to me, the police eventually does come out. It took them you know, 30 to another 40 minutes when we were trapped in our vehicles, so it's waiting for the police to come. We eventually had to call them. You know, there's nothing I can do. I'm not getting out of that vehicle. You know, it's either I commit a crime or I just sit in the car and you know, wait for the police. And I'll just wait. I wasn't going to fight them. I can't. We can't. It was at that boiling point. You know, It was about to that was about to happen if you unlock that vehicles. But when the police came out, they they was, we approached the police and the, we told them exactly what happened. And we were supposed to leave when these guys wouldn't let us go. So we asked the police officer, can we go? And as soon as they said yes, we just got in our vehicles and we left. And they couldn't do anything. They were just, they just couldn't do anything. So you know, thank God that happened, but that should have happened after a car accident. That doesn't usually happen. I've I've been in I think two or three other car accidents in my life. No, this this was different. So you know, I lived here all my life. You know, this, this to most Asian people is not a big deal. That's the issue. They you know they are we are very passive, especially um, especially the people straight. You know, the immigrant the immigrants, the second generations are people like me that, you know, we can't agree with the way we 
react to this kind of incidents. We can't just turn the other cheek and just walk the other way. This should have happened in the first place. So this is why I, you know, I so, I sought out legal, uh, you know, legal counsel. And that's when I found uh, an organization. I can't, I just can't remember. There's too many acronyms, but uh, there was a there was a lawyer that told me about a uh, a firm, uh, an organization that represents Asian Americans. And you know, when I told them, when I told them about the incident, I sent them the dash cam footage. You know, they came back to me and they told me to report this to you know Human Rights, the Commission for Human Rights of. Uh, of New York. And you know, I've done that. He also, you know, this is why I'm here speaking with you guys, but he is basically what opened doors and you know exposed me of all the resources that I have and the people that are working pro bono like you guys. So I mean I thank you guys for doing the work um that you guys are doing uh, representing the Asian American you know society here in the United States especially. And you know, it's just, it's just, uh, there's nothing else I could do except just tell you the story that happened, you know, what of what happened to me at this specific time. This happened in 2020. This is way before the uh, the statistics of what the report, you know, shows us. It's the, the reports in the, uh, that you use to analyze the situation here, you know, is dated to 2021, 2000, you know, is later than what, of when, of the time I, when I experienced this, uh, this incident. So what I'm trying to tell you, sorry, I'm starting, but what I'm trying to tell you is this has been going on for a very long time. You opened yeah, that yeah. second report with Vincent Chin back in 1970s, right? Nothing's been done since then. And, you know, it's just, I just don't know what to do as a citizen. So well, yeah. I think one of the things that you can do and that you have done, David, and thank you for sharing your story. And we, we totally agree with you that, you know, this has been going on a long time. Let me share a story with you and the rest of the viewers. You know, I grew up in Flushing like you. Um, you know, and oh, I was, no, I, I didn't really grow up in Flushing. Oh, you didn't grow up? Yeah, I, I I've been, like, so I, I, I was out in Connecticut. And at one point, I was with all Black people. And then another point, I was with all Jewish people. So racism has, you know, I've always been open to it ever since I was young, because I've, I've dealt with this since I was a kid. I was right. here until 10 when I was in Flushing. I was here till 10. And then the rent was too damn high, so we had to leave. And my parents brought me into Connecticut, and I was able to experience all of these different kinds of, you know, societies, racial societies, and me being part of it, I was always a flaw in the egg, you know, but I've learned to dealt with, I learned to deal with it, and um, it's just, but, let me, but let me tell you, this escalated to a point where this incident just shows me that this is not, it's not supposed to be like this. Right, and, 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 and this incident didn't get captured anywhere because, you know, it, it just didn't rise to a level where the police took action, even though what happened to David really terrorized you and your, and your friends. And, uh, and, you know, I remember, you know, I grew up in Flushing and I got into a car accident with uh, my friend. Um, I was a passenger. She was the driver and she was uh, Asian American also. And uh, it was like a kid driving his like older sister's uh, car right along uh, 32nd Avenue to Bayside. Uh, so he could go to his job in Bayside. 
and stop sign foam, um, you know, um, you know, ran into us. And his called his mom. Uh, they're they're white. They're you know, I guess Greek or whatever. And so his mom comes driving over to the scene. This is like two thousand and two, two thousand and one. Uh, and this is just kind of describing some of the racial maybe tensions that underlie relationships that come to a fore when things like car accidents happen. And so she comes screaming into the thing. Everybody's okay, right? And she's like, oh, my God, you Koreans can't drive. You know, and she was yelling at me. And I was like, I'm not even Korean. I'm not even driving, you know, but that's besides the point. But I was just like, well, okay, you know, you kind of car accident, but all of a sudden it's the Asian bad driver. It's the yeah, Asian, you, you drive bad. You got small eyes, you know, or whatever. It, it's, it's really interesting how it just bubbles up. And you're like, is it just not a car accident? What is me being, you know? And so, you know, that's a long time ago. Uh, but obviously that stereotype we know is true. And it gets folded into uh, a lot of the anti-Asian violence and, and the moment that we're in. And I think that, you know, both your story and perhaps even mine, uh, you know, um, you know, um, you know, speak to that. And I think that our report ends as it uh, has uh, in both of our reports with a list of recommendations. So at this point, I'm going to invite Megan back into the stage. So David, you could turn off your camera until we get back into the Q&A. And I'm going to let Megan just go through uh, the, um, the recommendations that we have. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, David. And before we get to that, I just want to thank you both so much for sharing those stories, especially thank you, David. You know, it's one thing to read about your story in the report. It's a, quite another to, you know, hear it directly from you. And, you know, I, I had no idea about the, the father detail. And, and like, I think you shared some really important lessons with all of us, like, and Chris's story too, with the mother detail, you know, it's, it's just, it's wild how, you know, like what people get taught, um, in their families. Um, but anyway, I, before we get to the recommendations, I, David also mentioned the map and I'm just going to pull that up again, really quickly. Like David, um, pointed out and that I neglected to even mention, you know, this, this cluster right here that is flushing. Um, so David's totally right. These these incidents are, you know, occurring and where where Asian Americans live, they're occurring in our backyards. Um, moving to the to the slide that um, we all want to hear about, like, you know, what what can be done? What can we do? Um, the second report has a. Um, a lengthy section about, you know, what we've been studying over the past year and what we think are really um, good recommendations, um, both focusing, you know, on the short term, um, what we can do as well as on the long term, what we can do. Um, and out of these nine, I think um, a few of them may be self-explanatory. So I just want to focus on a few of these. So um, for number one, improve public hate crime data reporting. You know, Chris mentioned at the beginning that what we've been told uh, throughout the whole pandemic and, you know, is report, report, report. Um, as the way we see it, um, or the way I see it at least, um, it's, it's not even as much about um, regular people reporting or victims of incidents reporting. It's, it's really about whether law enforcement reports uh, the data they have and whether they can be held accountable. Um, 
So the FBI actually released its report on hate crimes, and it um, there was a statistic on a number of law enforcement agencies throughout the country reporting zero hate crimes or not even reporting on hate crimes at all. And while uh, New York City isn't one of them, um, I don't think, uh, what we found through our, our data collection is, you know, like there's there's so little that the public actually knows. Um, and like, you know, we as lawyers, if we're if we know the the specific government source to look to or the court website that has all the hearing information and we can't even figure out what's going on, the you know, law for, law enforcement just isn't doing a good enough job at um, reporting to the the general public. Um, so while I do want to commend um, a number of the DA's offices that have been issuing press releases on um, recent incidents, um, I think, you know, the report delves into greater detail about there's, we just need a, a better system um, for making all of this data and all of this information visible to the public so that law enforcement is giving the public access to information and being held accountable. Um, for number two, uh, recognize the community as victim and investigative partner. This is um, just like, I think a, a really important theme um, because um, like, like David mentioned, you know, it's like something like this affects all of us so deeply. And we all need to recognize that hate crimes affect a whole community of people who are wondering, uh, you know, could I be next to be attacked just because of who I am or what I look like? And, you know, are those attacks going to occur where I live and in my own backyard? Um, so that's just uh, more of a, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, less of a, you know, like data point, but more of recognizing that the whole community is not only affected, but also, you know, can be involved and can really help out. And we we saw this with the Patrick Mateo case, you know, in, in, um, in terms of Albany's advocacy efforts, in terms of, you know, celebrities um, getting involved and, you know, tweet, like Olivia Munn tweeting about the incident. Um, so it's really recognizing that we all um, have sort of a role to play and, you know, it's, we all can contribute to the discussion, um, which I do want to leave plenty of time for Q&A after um, this as well. So I'll just hit on the um, fourth point, which is reform the hate crimes law is something else that we, you know, as lawyers have been studying a lot over the past year. And what our recommendation is, is really to eliminate some quirks or inconsistencies in the New York hate crimes law that make it hard for prosecutors to do their job. Um, for example, there's a list of specified offenses that only those offenses can be hate crimes. You know, like if an offense is not on that list, it can't actually be considered a hate crime, even if, you know, it was uh, done with bias motivation. Um, and some, some like, you know, we've spoken with prosecutors who've told us, you know, it just, some, some crimes just don't make sense that, you know, this one crime is on the list, but something that's of comparable severity or even more severe is not on that list. Um, and so that, that's one of our recommendations, you know, to make sort of all, all crimes of 
that severity or similar severity that are done with the hate crime requisite bias motivation to, to be able to be categorized as a hate crime. And then um, one of our other recommendations is um, the, the New York statute requires uh, the hate crime to be done with the bias motivation in whole or in substantial part. Um, and I, I know it's, I, I'm getting into sort of a lot of legalese here, but basically this, this ties right in with David and Chris's stories. It's, you know, there's a lot of um, incidents that at first are like traffic incidents or car accidents. Um, you know, when we were doing our research, there was um, a case in, in a different state, but we were doing like, you know, a lot of cross-state research to sort of examine what can be changed about New York's hate crime laws. And we we were reading about like a, a case in Washington where there was a, a traffic incident um, or someone was issued like a, a traffic ticket and they got so angry and they, you know, attacked the, I think the, the, or the, the parking ticket um, booth person. And they started calling them the N-word and, you know, really lashing out because of the race of the victim. Where, but then, you know, it's, it's hard to, to pinpoint, like, was that because they were angry over the traffic or parking ticket? Or was that because, you know, they had like uh, a real hate motive and bias motivation? And, you know, if the statute like in New York requires that the hate motive be in whole or in substantial part, it's, it's really hard to, for a prosecutor actually to, to ever prove that. Um, as uh, the, one of the, the partners at my law firm that I work with likes to put it, um, Jen Ru, she's like, you know, when you think about it, do, how can you explain whether you, whether you love someone or why you love someone? Um, like, can you put, can you pinpoint that and like explain exactly what your motivation is? Probably not. And it's like, it's the same way with a hate motive. You can't really pinpoint whether something is in whole or in substantial part because of hate and you can't really explain that hate. Um, so, you know, those are just two, two um, recommendations among others we'd make to the hate crimes statute to make it easier for prosecutors to do their job. And then finally, um, the last point on this list, um, I've skipped over a number of them that probably are pretty self-explanatory, but in terms of revisiting bail reform, it's we could have a whole discussion about this point alone. Uh, but um, in terms of what we've put into the report, Albany does support Governor Hochul's new bail reform points, um, which mainly, uh, you know, like for example, crimes involving violence or the threat of violence should be bail eligible, which basically means just that a judge can set bail, not that they have to, um, and that kind of sort of goes back to the age-old determination, which, you know, still exists in federal law, but um, is sort of uh, getting um, uh, reformed away in, in state laws that, you know, like, bail should consider whether someone is a flight risk and a danger to the community, because the purpose of bail is to ensure that uh, the um, potential defendant shows up for their hearings. Um, and we think that, you know, it the judge must have discretion to 
to be able to consider those two factors, whether someone will flee and also whether they are really a danger to the community. Um, and that that's, I mean, that's glossing over a lot of the points, but um, uh, is basically what we've summarized in our, our latest report. And then finally, um, I just um, want to emphasize that, you know, this is not really like about prosecution or punishment. It's really, we're trying to take a multifaceted approach and figure out, you know, where, where we can really attack and address the issues that are contributing to anti-Asian violence, both in the short term and in the long term. Um, and I know like, you know, we, we have all these discussions and we always want to know what exactly can be done. And um, we also want everyone sort of to contribute to the discussion. So I think we'll turn it over to um, everyone for a Q&A at this point. Jim Dingaman. Hey, Jim, you should be able to speak. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Uh, what did you discern? Because I remember you did a study. I listened to the report you did a year ago. And in terms of the ethnicity of the perpetrators in these various incidents, how did you sort of discern that in terms of how it breaks down? And secondly, what do you make of the fact that uh, what's publicized in these high profile cases is the ethnicity tends to be non-white uh, in these murder homicide cases? Is that not uh, is that an anomaly or is it uh, reflective of what you've discovered or how do you make sense of all how the media is portraying these events? Yeah, Megan, did you want to talk about a little bit about the data collection? Yes, I think the short answer is we don't have a conclusion in terms of, you know, the race of the perpetrator. We did attempt to collect that data and we just found that it was, it was too difficult. Um, it, the information just wasn't out there or, you know, the media would, it, sometimes it was hard to discern from a media article what the race of the actual perpetrator was. And sometimes, you know, it's, it, it's less sort of what is the media reporting on? Um, I, I think it just, we didn't have uh, data that we were comfortable um, with in terms of preciseness or accuracy. And so we just, we, we found that, that that data point just wasn't there. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, we, we don't see this as a black on Asian problem. We, in the media, there is a narrative, I think, uh, story about black on Asians being one of the drivers. And, and there's been a lot of concern about that within the Asian American community. We think that this is a, this is the moment that we're in. Everyone's kind of experienced a tremendous amount of stress. There's a lot of stress everyone's lashing out at everyone else. There's a, there's a really, um, you know, we're in a moment of great stress and great violence in our country. We think that much of it has expressed itself in anti-Black, anti-Asian, and anti-Semitism. And, and actually, those are kind of the tropes that we return to. There are Blacks that are attacking Asians. True. There are Whites that are attacking Asians. Also true. <laughs> you know, there's everybody on Asians, right? You know, David's story. You know, he got the black and white coming out of the car. There was no, like, black, white people on me or, or black people. It was just everybody, right? You know, and so it's just something that's really in the water, so to speak, right? And we have to talk honestly about that history and where it comes from and not ignore things that are facts. But we, we certainly don't think of this as a black on Asian problem. 
We see this as a larger scale problem within the, the scale of our country, right? Um, at 7.30, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on in another program that we're doing a community convening uh, about the, uh, uh, the murder of Ziwan Yan, the, the, the Forest Hills Chinese restaurant delivery person who was killed by a white person, a Jewish person, right? Within sort of Forest Hills, there is violence everywhere. <laughs> unfortunately. And, and we haven't located sort of say, this is the group. And if we take care of that, that's over. It's not true. You know? And so we haven't focused on that. And when we focus on the history of our country, the violence that is there, how it's expressed within our culture, how we can deal with that, how we can acknowledge it and try to progress. David, I don't know if you have anything, you know, sort of on that matter, perhaps that you wanted to say. Um, no, I, I completely agree with you. It's there's a lot of people on Asian people. Uh, it's just, you know, and it's, there's a lot of stress. And this, had this like, like I said, during my story, you know, this was in the middle of Black Lives Matter. This was in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, it's a lot of things going on and people are stressed. But uh, yeah, so I completely agree with, with uh, what you say. Yeah, and, and, and by, by noting the stress in our, in our country and in our society and maybe globally, it's not to, of course, excuse any of it, but as to locate the moment that we're in, we have 1 million dead in the United States, you know, outstripping the number of dead in the civil war, like world, you know, like it's enormous. There are like the 1 million dead has left 9 million people directly affected by COVID-19. So we are perhaps not yet, cause we're in the middle of it. Like how do we wrap our heads around this loss? How do we wrap our heads around the stress in our lives? Like, it's an incredibly stressful time, and it's it's bringing back up the targets that are the often the targets during sort of uh, these moments of stress in America through economic times, through, and now through a pandemic. And so that's um, you know that's how we are locating this uh, sort of era. So uh, we have a question from May Wong. Uh, what resources would you recommend to help victims of hate crime? Uh, I do know that Albany has a a program called the Hate Eradication Active Response Team, I believe. Um, it's called the HEART Program. And um, you can find more information on the Albany website, or I'll find it and put it in the chat. But um, it basically aims to to walk victims through, you know, any sort of resources they might want or need, um, whether that be getting help talking to police or the DA's office or getting mental health resources or um, whatever, you know, the victim decides they want to do. And I know um, our law firm also does a number of representations helping victims, you know, deal with things as mundane as like how, how to, how to get funds from GoFundMe or um, so I think a heart also, you know, has a, Thanks, Young. Um, the link is in the chat now, but um, it's basically, you know, whatever the, the victim wants to do, um, someone from Heart will listen to them and take that on and try to help them get whatever resources they may need. Okay, uh, we have a question from Hafsa Ansar. Uh, this is for Chris. Uh, how do you think racial triangulation has impacted the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes? Well, I think the the media narrative and you see it in social media you see it in news that you know it's that it's a black on asian thing and so we want to be very honest about this there are blacks on asian crime there's whites on asian crime right you know like 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 
it, one should not predominate and then be seen to be the problem. That's racial triangulation and then buying into it. What we want to say is there is blank on Asian crime. There's also anti-black crime, anti-Semitism. We've seen the rise of it. Buffalo was not that long ago, right? But our country has come to a point where these mass shootings happen and we're mourning for three days. And then we've got to be in mourning for another shooting. Much of it, you know, uh, you know, dealing with the, um, you know, uh, uh, the race issue of our country. And, um, and we have to be careful about racial triangulation, the uses of these things to distract us from the real root causes of these issues, which we need to talk about honestly and get to the, get to the bottom. And that's the only way we can progress. Chris, I have a question for you. Uh, I know uh, after the, uh, the unfortunate murder of uh, Christina Yunelli, uh, members of the Asian American community uh, leadership got together and actually had meetings with uh, the Manhattan District's attorney's office uh, in regards to anti-Asian hate crimes uh, and, and other, you know, uh, things happening to the community. Um, what has come about from those meetings, and uh, has other uh, district attorneys, uh, law enforcement, uh, given you a response back regarding the report so far? So. Um... If you look, if you remember one of the slides, the vast majority of the incidents happened in Manhattan because, you know, for many of us, Manhattan is the center of New York City, right? Um, and so over close to 60%. Alvin Bragg has been incredibly responsive and incredibly focused on this problem. He has made a request to increase the numbers of people in his hate crime unit uh, at the direction of our recommendations. Um, and so the city council and the mayor can fund his request. And to put it there, we had seven convictions in uh, 2021 of hate crimes, six of which were in Manhattan. So, and, and there was one in Queens, which we talked about, Patrick Mateo. And if Abney was not involved in that, it would not have happened. So one of the things that we want to note is, everyone, you live in New York City. Every borough has an elected DA. Every borough has an elected DA that should be responsive to the people that live in that borough. And, and, and you know what? Queens has become uh, a new, um, you know, center of Asian Americans. Are we being protected? Are we given in our own homes, a block away from our home? Can we be comfortable? You know, can we be safe? Can we have the responsiveness uh, by the police and the respect that we deserve as human beings? And if we do not have that, there are tough questions that the PD and the Queens DA here, speaking about David, talking about these things, need to answer for us. And we really need to press them. So, I mean, in Brooklyn, you know, we need to see more there, too. There's not been any convictions um, in 2021 for hate crimes, right? And once again, to underscore what Megan said before, our press for hate crimes is not a press to send everyone's butt to jail. Our press for hate crimes is for accountability and for the system to show this matters to us and we will not stand for it. And that's what the system needs to do. It doesn't necessarily have to end in jail, but it does get processed through that system because that's the system we have now. And um, you know, Jim put in the ho in the in the chat about stepping in. That's exactly what we need, Jim. When when you uh, everyone everyone Asian or not Asian, if you see something happening, shut it down as much as you can. Do not put yourself in danger. But you can say, hey, what are you doing? Stop that. You know, give that societal disapproval to be like, that is absolutely messed up what I'm watching and don't go on. And so if we if we make each person on the subway 
um, our brother, our sister, we take care of them in that way without putting yourself in danger, which I wouldn't, you know, press you to. That's what we need to start doing. So we have some sense of humanity and compassion and come back to um, our society. And I've gone out of my way as a New Yorker to be super nice to everybody that I bump into, hold the door, spread some like, you know, like, like courtesy and just be like extra careful just because I think we need that extra because we're all so like close to exploding even if you don't know about it. So. Question for David. So ever since your incident uh, three years ago, uh, how has your personal life changed? Um, how have you adjusted uh, uh, you know, in addition to sort of uh, speaking about your incidents to you know, uh, teach others about what happened? Uh, have you had to sort of uh, perhaps go to counseling, et cetera, in order to deal with the you know, stress that you had that particular uh, incident? Um, well, it's been two years since uh, um, I've, you know, at first it was, uh, we, you know, we did get, I did get surgery. I eventually did get surgery on my uh, left shoulder. So I've been uh, rehabbing that. Um, and, you know, there were a couple of incidents where, you know, the vehicle window was broken. We had two, two within the span of a week where we found a vehicle without windows. So, so we uh so that's you know i've been i've been trying to uh we've been careful in our own neighborhoods of where we park and where we you know what we do what time of day we, that we uh, leave and it's just is this is not the way i should be living and thank god because of uh covid we you know we're still we're still remotely uh working um i not there's no need for me to go to my office every single day so i've been indoors mostly but that's it's just I don't know. I've uh, there hasn't been. I didn't get any consulting, uh, which but I did get recommended for uh, by uh, by another attorney. They told me that there is a uh, mental counseling, but no. This is another thing. So I am an American. I was born here. I was born in Jersey City back when they did have a hospital. Um, but my girlfriend came to the United States six years ago, seven years. It's been it's been eight years now, but. You know, she's newly, uh, she's immigrated here. English isn't that good. And my friend that was also with me in that car, uh, he came here when he was young. We were, uh, when he was 10. So he's a green card holder. And he and I sort of agrees that this should have happened. But, you know, my girlfriend who is newly uh, immigrated here, she, you know, lives in fear. She it affected her more than me. We're guys, but I mean, she, you know, she's scared in the first place. And, you know, her life has changed more than mine. I've been through this a lot, but it's just the smallest things like this can impact the way a person, you know, views a certain race or a certain society. So, you know, at first, you know, she was okay, but you know, as time goes on, she sort of starts avoiding people, avoiding contact, and it's just it's, so. This is why I'm taking steps and trying to uh, resolve this matter, find some kind of justice if there is one. Which uh, I, you know, until now, even today, I don't think there was any justice in this incident, and you no, know, it's just aggro. It's just aggravating. So I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's just uh, the, 
the milk is already spilled. So there's nothing else that we can do. And that's just the way I've been living right now. So it's just, it's just, it was just a bump in the road. So, yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing. Uh, we have a question from Alexander Chu Fong. How are other community leaders addressing anti-Asian uh, AAPI hate crimes? And are other groups addressing the growth of uh, AAPI hate within their communities? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of groups are addressing it. The Asian American Federation, if you go to the website, you know, has the program called Hope Against Hate, has uh, created a mental health directory for Asian Americans so that you can search for a mental health provider by language, by geography. It's one way. Um, you know, there are conflict de-escalation programs that the Federation's been running. That's another way. There are some organizations, nonprofit, uh, that are not doing much beyond it because they're politically tied to a certain, you know, sort of view and they're not going to, they're not been engaged, I think, nearly as much as they should. I will not name names. Um, but whichever organization that you think, hey, why are you, what are you doing? And you go to their website and you see there's nothing about this. There's nothing about anti-Asian. Then you need to hold them to account that if, there's, if they are to serve your community, um, they need to have something that they can propose instead of just criticizing proposals that we have put forward, uh, w w which is often the case. Um, and lastly, there have been a tremendous growth of new Asian American nonprofits by many Asian Americans who were not previously politically or socially active, not community active. I mean, I think I can think of at least five to seven new organizations that didn't exist pre-COVID-19 pandemic. So there's a lot of hope uh, in, in, in this moment. There's a lot of growth. One of the things that we're doing to address uh, this is long-term uh, education. So we've pushed for Asian Americans and the law uh, to be part of, to be offered by law schools. We've so far increased the number of law schools doing this by four. Uh, you know, and, um, you know, by four. So four law schools are going to offer Asian Americans in the law uh, next semester. That didn't before. So we, we feel really good about that. And we think that long-term education is key. And of course, why RE uh, at CUNY is so important. I teach as an adjunct at CUNY Hunter in the Asian American Studies program, because I think that's important. And, um, and as you well heard, uh, maybe many of you heard, uh, AAPI, curriculum will be created for the K uh, through 12 New York City Department of Education. So that will help long term. Uh, but, but many of the things that we're offering in our report here in Albany are immediate and um, uh, near term, near term proposals. In regards to the 200 plus cases that you study for the report, uh, did you break it down by uh, victims, gender, and also uh, the different groups that were sort of attacked, you know, East Asian and uh, other groups? Yes, we did break the uh, victim data down by gender. Um, I don't have a slide for that, but it is in the report. Uh, we do not have um, a breakdown of, you know, specific ethnicity within uh, the Asian group, um, just because that, that data also is not available. Uh, well, does the New York City data sort of track with like the national trend in regards to sort of a lot of these attacks or sort of or, or like uh, incidents involve more women towards women than men? Yes, definitely. It's on page 22 of the report. We have a graph that shows 
that 55.2% of victims were female and 44.8% were male. So it's a slight skew towards victims being female, but um, which I believe tracks generally with the national data, but it's not, you know, overwhelmingly skewed one way or the other. Uh, Jim Bingaman asks, uh, does NYPD in its reporting mark down the ethnicity of people doing these hate crimes against Asian Americans in their reporting? Uh, I guess you didn't find any particular data when you were doing your research? So the, the public-facing data is very limited in terms of any information on the perpetrator at all. Um, you know, any member of the public can do a freedom of information law request um, on the NYPD, and then they can give you the complaint report or the arrest report, and the arrest report will have um, that data, but it's just a little bit harder to get. Uh, thank you to our speakers once again. Remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need.